Rosé, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hi, everyone. Good to be back. You know, guys, we said many, many years ago when the pandemic started that we were going to uh, try to try to avoid doing only COVID stories. And I just wanted to remark that last week, we I think we finally, for the first time maybe since this whole thing started, we finally had a show that had almost no mention of COVID. It's funny you- that you bring that up, Bill, because we're going to swing the pendulum pretty hard the other direction this week. We're going all the way back. Yeah, I don't feel like checking if uh, that was if last week was the first non-COVID show since the pandemic started uh, a decade ago. But I'm going to go ahead and say that we did it, uh, and that it and that it took this long. But yes, uh, all of our stories this week, uh, we, we it's um, uh, touch touch on on COVID a little bit, some more explicitly than others. Um, but because uh, it is still a fairly large deal. I've heard that. I, I, I'll be honest. Uh, even as a journalist, this is a little embarrassing to read. I'm or a little embarrassing to say. I don't read the news that much anymore. Um, I just kind of absorb it, uh, you know, sort of ethereally. But yes, sure. you've uh, never sounded more American, Alex. <laughs> yeah, right. No. Um, uh, but yes, it's uh, obviously still a huge deal, and still a lot of stories springing forth from it. So it's just going to be us this week. We got a got a bunch of. Um, uh, uh, interesting stories to talk about. First off, we wanted to um, give a little update here. Last year, around September, we told you about a lawsuit that was filed by um, a group of Whole Foods employees that accused Whole Foods of illegally disciplining them and in some cases firing them uh, for wearing face masks adorned with Black Lives Matter messaging on them. So it was obviously a very fascinating complaint given all that was going on last year and is still going on, as we've said. Um, But we got some pretty clear uh, closure on that last week. Uh, Last week, a judge basically knocked out the entire case, saying that this this little dust-up over the masks and the mask policy at Whole Foods does not fall within the bounds of workplace discrimination laws. So there's a lot to go over here. Yeah, this can be a more 2020 style story where it's yeah. the juxtaposition of wearing masks because of the pandemic and also the racial justice movement. Mm-hmm. Um, give us sort of a little quick refresh here in case people have forgotten about this case. Yeah, so it was a proposed class action that was filed in Boston Federal Court and it eventually grew to about 27 named plaintiffs. And the the, the claims were... Nuance, but generally they allege that Whole Foods had disciplined or even fired some workers for wearing Black Lives Matter face masks while on the job um, in violation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, the the bedrock work dis- workplace discrimination law that I think most people are pretty familiar with. Uh, the lawsuit basically said that other employees, or, or rather it, it, employees had long worn clothing with other logos and slogans and messages on them without receiving any disciplinary action. So they were saying this was um, unevenly enforced, which is therefore uh, uh, an instance of discrimination. So like you say, Amber, the case drew a lot of eyeballs um, with with regard to all of the major sort of vanguard news stories that were percolating last year. And especially also since Whole Foods had... 
had a history of holding itself out as something of a backer of progressive causes, at least by the standards of like major corporations. I mean, uh, as far as that stuff goes, um, back in September, when we talked about this the first time, uh, when I was reading back, doing a little research, I, I had forgotten that the judge hearing the case is a woman named Allison Burroughs. And she actually predicted that the company would settle. Um, uh, Whole Foods would settle the case rather than go on this protracted litigation carrying what she said would be a racist label. She said that somewhat informally. They were just at a at a scheduling conference and they were talking about how long it might go on and all that stuff. So it wasn't like in an official document or anything. Um, but that didn't happen. Whole Foods uh, you sort of said we're not doing that at the time and they litigated very forcefully. Uh, and that brings us to today. So um, yeah. It's so interesting. You guys mentioned that this case was sort of this, you know, middle of the Venn diagram for these two huge stories last year. But it's also the middle of the Venn diagram for two areas of the law, right? It's yeah. There's there's discrimination law, and then there's there's this idea of speech, and you know where this conduct falls on those two things is fairly material. And it seems like that was a big part of the ruling that that Alex is about to break down for us. That's true. Um, the and yeah, I mean, we're like this is this is COVID adjacent because they're wearing face masks. This easily could have happened if there were no COVID and the, the employees just started wearing buttons or T-shirts or something on the job. It could have happened. Um, but in any case, those are the, we, we've laid out the main claims. And um, as a result of this order last week, it's a near total win for Whole Foods. Uh, Judge Burroughs pretty quickly just dispenses through most of the employees' claim and. What it boils down to, it's only about a 20-page opinion, and she is a pretty crisp uh, writer. Um, I would encourage everyone to seek it out in full. But the basic thrust of the opinion is that even, even if this policy of disciplining employees who wear Black Lives Matter masks seems kind of off-kilter to an outside observer, it just doesn't fit within the boundaries. It, 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 it doesn't have the legs to withstand a Title VII claim. Uh, she, she has a pretty pithy summary of it in the opinion. Uh, she, she, she wrote, quote, At worst, they were selectively enforcing a dress code to suppress certain speech in the workplace. However unappealing that might be, it is not conduct made unlawful by Title VII. Title VII prohibits discrimination against a person because of race. It does not protect one's right to associate with a given social cause, even a race-related one, in the workplace. So you see there a pretty intriguing thought exercise. She's saying, you know, even if they had a policy that that banned their workers from wearing Black Lives Matter apparel or masks, and, you know, this policy would ostensibly be applied to workers regardless of color so it's not discriminatory even though the thing that is being stifled is the black lives matter movement which is explicitly race-based um so there's no remedy under title seven which is about rate which is about racial discrimination against employees based on their race um she in the writing of it she seemed to be aware of the fact that just saying that it doesn't apply to title seven um doesn't like resolve the social issue, right? I mean, that is not the role here of the court. Um, but she she wrote that maybe the the employee should take a more pragmatic approach. Uh, this is just a, a this is another section from the opinion. Quote: Whole Foods employees that are not happy with the policy can find someplace else to work, 
express themselves outside the workplace, work with Whole Foods to change the policy and or publicize the policy in an effort to get uh, consumers to spend their dollars elsewhere. But under the facts alleged here, their redress does not rely within Title VII. So you, you can see her sort of drawing a line around the bounds of of bedrock employment discrimination laws to not cover things like this. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not entirely surprised by this ruling because if it had gone the other way, you can imagine that this would have really opened up a lot of potential avenues for lawsuit under Title VII. I mean, it obviously we're talking about race-related things here, but Title VII covers, you know, national origin. It covers gender. You can imagine any number of sort of social movements that then could be swept into this kind of scenario. Yeah, I mean, it's. I mean, like like I said, I mean, the 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 law covers discrimination against people based on those factors that you just right. listed, right? But I mean. If you're applying the policy evenly, she is writing here, if you're applying the policy evenly, then like discrimination against a cause is not exactly a thing for the purposes of uh, workplace discrimination law. Uh, just to do a little bit of cleanup here. All that I, I said, almost the entire case was knocked out for our purposes in terms of the wide application of this question. It's basically dead. All that remains of the case now is this uh, is a single um, retaliation claim from an employee named Savannah Kinzer. And uh, Kinzer alleged, in, in addition to these mask discipline claims that have been now tossed aside, she said she was fired for organizing protests among the workers and also for filing uh, EEOC and, LR and NLRB complaints over this dispute. The judge said... Those those things that she is alleging she was retaliated against, that's protected action, and we can litigate those claims. Um, but that's one, you know, from we are now withdrawing from a class action that could have covered close to 100,000 workers to now uh, a single employee's retaliation claims. The the broader question of whether this selective ban on, a, on Black Lives Matter masks, whether that's discriminatory. We have an answer now from one judge, and we'll see about an appeal here as we talk. Um, the answer is that uh, no, uh, in the eyes of this judge, that's not discriminatory. And um, uh, that's that's sort of where the closure lies here. For our next story, we're jumping from uh, you know the realm of employment law to the realm of insurance law, something we've talked about in the context of COVID quite a bit. Yeah, that's a um, that's a hallmark of the of the COVID litigation stories. Yes, but we have a new lawsuit that was filed last week by a group of um, Planet Fitness gyms. Uh, gyms were obviously hit very hard by the pandemic. Yeah. It seems to accuse one uh, insurer of going beyond just merely denying coverage to the gyms and citing a, a series of internal documents seems to claim that the company was operating more in bad faith that it was uh, you know seeking out perhaps uh ways to deny coverage that went beyond just saying like you know i looked at your i looked at your details and we're not going to cover you yeah i definitely want to hear more about this one because we've talked about insurance quite a bit it's obviously a hot area of the law right now because of all these covid claims but we haven't seen something quite like this so give us sort of the facts on the ground here so it's this company called Keystone PF. They own uh, about 80 Planet Fitness gyms, like franchises of Planet Fitness, uh, yeah. across four states along the eastern seaboard. Um, like many, many other businesses, they were 
denied coverage uh, for the losses they've suffered from either having to close entirely or operate with severe restrictions during COVID. Um, And again, like many other businesses, they then sued their insurer, uh, a company called Affiliated FM Insurance, um, uh, in a lawsuit that was filed last week in Pennsylvania State Court. They argued that their losses should be covered under uh, a a concept that should now be familiar to our listeners. (laughs) Yeah, right. The idea of business (laughs) interruption insurance, the idea that my business was, you know, ground to a halt because of this external thing, and this is why I'm paying insurance premiums to get some money when this happens. If there were a silver lining to be found in the pandemic, it is that some of us in the legal media are becoming more conversant in insurance law. Because now, <laughs> I, now I just rattle this stuff off. Uh, yeah, you know, business interruption insurance. But like you say, we, you know, we've the, these these claims have been cycling through the courts. Um, it often leaves businesses on the outside looking in, but we're we're talking about this. We're talking about this one because it's a little atypical. So tell us, uh, you know, tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean the case is that it's obviously at its earliest stages, so yeah. we will see how it unfolds. But it has a couple wrinkles just from the outset that I think are worth talking about because they aren't stuff we've talked about you know, in previous insurance cases dealing with the pandemic. For one, there's the policy itself. Um, uh, according to the gym owners, they bought this this really, really broad policy from Affiliated. They point repeatedly to the fact that it doesn't contain a carve-out for viruses. Mm-hmm. And they they cite the, the, the idea that those kind of carve-outs for viruses were added to a lot of different insurance policies. Um, many in the wake of the SARS outbreak in the early 2000s that that people had put in specific, we're not going to cover this if it's a virus provisions into your into your deal. This contract didn't have that. They also point to this other um, specific provision that I thought was interesting, which was um, it covers so-called communicable diseases. Mm. Now that yeah. would seem like it would be helpful for these planet fitnesses, um, but but the the way that that provision works is it offers this fairly low sort of capped payout for those kind of situations. Um, uh, I think it was a hundred thousand dollars is what they pay out for that. So you know you might be able to get that kind of coverage, um, but uh, but it doesn't it doesn't impact the broader idea of like we need our business interruption insurance. It's just this sort of specific side. Side thing. So just interesting sort of wrinkles to this, uh, you know, this policy that's at issue in this case. Yeah, those things definitely make it stand out. But I know you said right at the beginning, and this is what kind of hooked me on this story, um, that there's some internal documents that came into play and some potential bad faith here. Yeah. So the I mean, the really interesting thing, and I think why a lot of people, um, uh, you know, went and read our story this week, uh, Matt Santoni out in Pennsylvania wrote our coverage. It was really great. Everyone should go check out his story. Um, but I think the re- what really hooked people here is that there is this, you know, it goes beyond just saying you didn't pay for what we asked you to pay for. They allege this broader sort of blanket approach that Affiliated was taking that that they say sort of amounts to bad faith and an effort to really avoid paying for these kind of claims on a systemic yeah. level. So they repeatedly cite this internal memo that that was apparently circulated around among Affiliated employees on how to deal with COVID claims. So according to Keystone's lawsuit, these employees were instructed to sometimes offer coverage, you know, leave open the possibility that coverage would be available under that capped communicable disease provision, but to never 
allow for the more broader coverage that people were seeking. And the lawsuit says that, um, you know, despite there not being this virus rule, that this memo, you know, instructed these employees to treat every one of these policies as if coverage was going to be barred under a different exclusion, an exclusion for contamination. And this is something we've seen in other, you know, in other yeah. contexts, the insurer sort of looking for ways to looking for various areas of their, you know, policy as a way to exclude this coverage if they don't have that that virus provision in there. The interesting uh, quote that I wanted to share from the complaint here um, talking about this internal memo goes something like this. And they do they refer to affiliated by their parent company name FM Global. Quote FM Global hardly tries to disguise the purpose of the Talking Points memo to limit all coverage arising from the COVID-19 pandemic to the sublimited communicable disease coverage, even though AFM's provision policy does not otherwise contain any exclusion for business interruption losses resulting from the coronavirus. So what they're basically saying is that they were trying to f- use sort of the the nuances of this contract to funnel people toward this uh, this this more limited payout and what the lawsuit basically says is that that they were also telling people that this contamination exclusion applies when it really doesn't and they weren't looking into the individual circumstances that these insurers mm-hmm. were dealing with they were just reading they had from decided this memo. as a matter of policy within exactly. the company yes so um it's you know as i mentioned earlier it's we are in the the earliest stages of these uh of this case we have seen many of these cases, as I think Alex, as I think you mentioned, most of them do not go in the favor of um, uh, yeah. of the plaintiffs. But it's you know it's just one more uh, one more small piece of a huge picture that we've been following um, in this you know extremely extremely tricky question of who is responsible for paying for the huge economic fallout that has come from this. big COVID discussion today. I want to take us a little more broadly outside of employment law and outside of uh, what we're dealing with with insurance coverage and talk about the court system itself. In the whole year, I can't believe it's only been a year, as we sort of talked about at the top of the show, it feels like a million years. But in this whole time, we've mostly been talking about the obvious impacts on the courts that Challenges come from things like closing courts and how it's a patchwork and yeah. backlogs in cases and just, you know, all the difficulties with Zoom he- hearings and, and oral arguments, all that kind of stuff. The nuts and ha- bolts of the legal system. Yeah. yeah. And it's usually been around the actual closings. But what we haven't talked about, which is kind of the flip side of that that's happening at this stage in the pandemic, is that there's also perils when courts stay open. Um mm-hmm. What we saw this week was five nonprofit legal service organizations who sued Los Angeles County Superior Court's presiding judge. L.A., as probably most people know, at this point is one of the hardest hit areas in America for the coronavirus pandemic right now. It's seeing a lot of skyrocketing cases. There have been some additional lockdowns in that area. Um, The suit claims that the judge is violating state constitutional rights of both attorneys and litigants by requiring them to appear in person for traffic and eviction hearings. So you're telling me they sued 
a judge, Amber? <laughs> I am you, indeed. Yeah, you beat I me mean... to it. You beat me to it. I love, I love a good <laughs> fact pattern that's just uh, we're going to sue the court itself. We're suing. We're we're we're, t- we're putting the system on trial. People say that it's hackneyed, but it's <laughs> happening here. What else is the what, what? What else are they generally alleging? Yeah, so the suit was filed. Um, there were a few groups, but one of the lead ones was a group called Public Counsel, and they represent a lot of people in these sort of low-level disputes that are, end up in court. Um, what they and some of the other nonprofits are saying is that they want an order to prevent this judge, his name's Kevin Brazil, from holding in-person traffic and unlawful detainer hearings during this ongoing pandemic. Mm-hmm. It includes claims that are um, pretty interesting here that – the court itself is creating a public nuisance and it's creating a dangerous condition on public property by having these in-person hearings. It sort of makes sense to me that something like this was inevitable at some point, especially in L.A. The groups yeah. point out that L.A. is facing one of the highest rates of COVID-19 deaths in the nation. Um, the hearings are what they would consider essentially super spreader events. And they are also saying it disproportionately impacts people of color and those with low incomes because of the types of um, matters we're talking about here. The groups say Los Angeles County imposes basically really severe consequences on anybody who doesn't appear in court for one of these traffic or unlawful detainer um, hearings. And so there's no exceptions right now, even for people who've tested positive for COVID-19. So it's a pretty bad situation. You know, we were, I mean, we were being a little glib before talking about, you know, suing courts and all that kind of stuff. But from reading this lawsuit, it seems like things are not great if you believe what they are, what they are claiming in in this complaint. Yeah. I mean, I want to run down a few of the things that they have um, presented in this complaint. They say that conditions at these hearings are pretty bad. The, The nonprofits say three Los Angeles County Superior Court employees have recently died from COVID-19 and it's believed they contracted the virus at work. In addition to that, they argue that just by virtue of the way the court's facilities are laid out and built, it makes it basically impossible to maintain six feet of social distance. Uh, There's crowded courtrooms, also hallways that just do not accommodate that kind of spacing that would keep people more safe. And they also say that there's been no meaningful consultation of any public health experts to get approval on the mitigation measures the court is taking. So they just they don't have a lot of sort of scientific backing for the way they've set up still having all of these people coming into the courthouses. So those are the the main allegations of what's going on here. This this was always apparent when the when the pandemic hit. Um, But as we as we now enter covid year two. Uh, or rather, or rather, bear down on it. Um, what's increasingly apparent is is the 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 socioeconomic angle to it. Whether you're talking about how which communities are hit the hardest, which communities get tested first, which communities get vaccinated first, and it it sounds like there's some of those dynamics here at play in this suit too, in terms of who you know who is most vulnerable going into court all the time etc what like what 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 do they say on that tip yeah that's absolutely part of the story and i think it's something that people are paying increasing attention to as we've you know slogged forward in this long pandemic period yeah um i think it's it, it's as people would probably guess i mean if nonprofits are the ones bringing this suit many of the people they're representing are low wage many people of color and so 
One of the nonprofits, um, one of the attorneys involved in the litigation, works for one called Neighborhood Legal Services of Los Angeles County and had a quote that I thought was pretty instructive here. The communities we serve are already suffering the worst consequences of this pandemic, with rates of serious illness and death several times higher than those in whiter, wealthier neighborhoods. The Los Angeles Superior Court, as the guardian of justice, should be trying to mitigate these inequalities, not exacerbate them. So it's, you know, it's pretty, pretty um, heart wrenching stuff when you think about how impacted people have been. And obviously, we want justice to proceed, but safely. So they're going to have to work out something here to see if if conditions really are as bad as is portrayed in this in this complaint. As for the court itself, um, when Law 360 reported on this, we did reach out to the court. Um, They said they don't comment on pending litigation. So pretty typical there, but did add this note. They said they anticipate that all matters brought by litigants each day across the county will be heard safely and fairly because of our commitment to equal access to justice. And I read that in part because there is a tension here between the safety of people that would potentially have to come into a courthouse and the access to justice, which truly has been impaired in some of the situations Mm -hmm. where these kind of hearings are shut down. So this will definitely be one to watch. show is something offbeat and there was one story that could not be ignored this week yeah uh if you listen to pro se and you know we do goofy legal news at the end of the show uh, a pretty clear candidate emerged in the middle of the week um and i and given what's happened since i like to think of it as something of like a crash course in the nature of internet celebrity which is becoming a very familiar story uh, in these times, we're obviously talking about the attorney uh, who briefly became a cat on a Zoom call, only to then have uh, some some pretty serious allegations of prosecutorial misconduct resurface from years ago. Mere hours later, um, I'm sure everybody knows what we're talking about. There's a Texas attorney named Rod Ponton. Uh, who was zooming him, you know, just zooming his way into a civil forfeiture <laughs> hearing like you do. Sure. Only to find that his face had been replaced through a filter of a, a an animated feline whose panicked eyes and face mirrored his own uh, visage, I would assume, as he scrambled to, uh, you know, sort of correct the situation in front of the judge. Um, we all know what's going on, but I think we should roll the tape. Ponton, I believe you have a filter turned on in the video settings. Uh, you might want to. Uh, uh, take, take we're trying look. to. We're tr- can you hear me, Judge? I can hear you. I think it's a filter. It, in the- it is, and I don't know how to remove it. I've got my assistant here. She's trying to, but uh, I'm prepared to go forward with it. <laughs> That's, I'm here live. It's not. I'm not a cat. <laughs> I can I can see that. Yeah, right. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> the uh the the 
Oh no! <laughs> yeah, the 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 anguished moan is really when like that is that is jet fuel for this so, clip. Like, I also yeah. really liked this when it first broke because you know it was one of those for for a moment at least. You hope the internet can actually provide something that's pretty lighthearted and the judge himself had been involved in posting this and he saying posted that, it yeah and that the that the attorney had acted professionally everybody has a slip up and they corrected it quickly like it was a, a real feel-good story for a second i mean i i'm not here to tell people how they how they should consume and digest their internet news um but it's true to say that there was more to the story yes whenever whenever an obscure person is thrust into internet fame i think among a certain sort of family of internet user there is a sense of waiting for some other kind of shoe to drop about some unscrupulous behavior or some other thing and uh it wasn't before long before some pretty pointed um allegations, stories about Ponton's time as the district attorney of Brewster County, Texas, soon resurfaced. There was um, some reporting from a uh, a reporter from Anthony L. Fisher, who did a uh, did a sort of video essay on this several years ago for Reason.com. He later fleshed it out in a fresh post on Business Insider this week. Uh, really interesting reporting. Basically, the crux of it is that Ponton, during his time as a DA, had secured a warrant to execute an armed raid of a small uh, smoke shop, head shop, paraphernalia store in a mm-hmm. in a in a city called Alpine, Texas, on suspicions that the shop was selling synthetic marijuana. Now, I will set aside for a moment the already fairly controversial practice of doing like armed, militarized raids on small businesses not believed to be armed or violent in any way, just drug raids. Um, but then more more materially for our purposes here, it came out uh, that the owner of the shop claimed that she had had a romantic relationship with Ponton before he was the DA uh, that ended somewhat acrimoniously, and she viewed his sort of role in securing the search warrant as an act of retribution or bitterness or sort of, you know, basically accusing the, uh, accusing the DA of like seeking out justice against a former lover just for, for purposes of bitterness. Right. She's quoted in the business insider story that came out this week, following up on it saying that, you know, making allegations that he had basically stalked her before she called it off and that this was then, retribution for it i know he's come out and said that you know everything was done by the book and and whatever um but yeah tough uh you know tough allegations if if they're true yeah i mean i it was i didn't there's there's a there's a meta text here about like how you how you're supposed to feel like how do we feel about zoom cat attorney now well i can Um, tell you how i feel okay like the internet ruins everything it gives you (laughs) something that's going to be this fun lighthearted spot in your day i saw this when it broke on twitter and i was delighted and enchanted like everyone else things can be pretty bleak in this uh, ongoing social distancing we're all doing and all of that so it's fun to have a story to just laugh at that's just pure and silly and and no big deal and then, of course, it has to get embroiled in whether you believe the attorney or if you believe the woman who says that she right. was targeted. Either way, it's a messy backstory that I did not want in my tale of a fluffy, 
cat avatar on a Zoom call. That's right. all this I would, wanted out of this. I mean, can you imagine if if you know the the Supreme Court flush had been embroiled in controversy afterwards? <laughs> I don't even want to get into what it might have been, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I if, if if memory serves, that the, the the Supreme Court flush happened in a case about like robocalls or something. Um, I don't know. I mean, I I mean, I still think it's extremely funny. Like you say, the allegations of what about what what this guy did are serious. If um, not, you know, sort of corroborated in a court of law or anything like that. But, you know, um, the bell tolls for all of us, uh, clearly, out here on the Internet, doing content wittingly or unwittingly. Um, but anyway, um, the thought... guy was a cat for... I mean, listen, he was, a, he was an attorney cat, and then he was a milkshake duck. I mean, that's, that's what happens. I thought a nice coda to this story... And maybe another example of the internet ruining everything um, uh, on our coverage of this, which I thought was was great. Morgan Conley wrote a wrote a good story for us. Um, yes. Someone commented on the on the article. <laughs> Don't view this video, or you may be in contempt of court. <laughs> so guys i'm just telling you don't commit crimes with your eyes uh you know you're not going to be able to take them back once you view the video you may be in contempt of court just whether they are wary. whether they are your actual eyes or your eyes uh darting around panicked imagined through the filter of an animated cat yeah you gotta oh, be careful no, out there i watched it <laughs> <laughs> oh guys what a great way to end this one thanks for everything today thanks for being with me bill see you again next week guys and alex <laughs> thank you guys we also want to thank our producers kelly marcano and steven trader our graphic designer chris yates and our contributing reporters this week matthew santoni morgan Connolly, craig clough and brian dowling music for our show comes from silent partner and kelly marcano and if you like pro se and anything we've talked about today We'd love you to do two things. One, give us a written review to help other people find our show. And two, head on over to our website and read more about the stuff we've talked about. That's at law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.